is in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Morning, everyone. I don't know if you can think back that far, but... How many were here last time I spoke on June 10th, the Sabbath, just before camp meeting? Yeah, quite a few of you were. Some of you weren't, and the reason I'm bringing it up is when I spoke then, the topic was God's law by design or imposed rules. And today is going to be kind of part two to that, and if you missed that, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast from June 10th, you know. Um, in that, we talked about a lot of things that God created into the very fabric of creation, things that just work because that's the way God made them. It's the way our world functions, you know. Uh, and we talked about a whole long list of design laws, and I'm not going to go through all those today, but uh, just to list a few of the top ones are the law of love uh, and the law of liberty, the law of worship, the law of exertion, all the health laws, the laws of physics, of math, the laws of nature, and of course the moral laws. Um, Those that were here last week and listened to Pastor Drew's sermon probably remember hearing him refer to the law of love and the law of worship which are a couple of those laws. Um, And today we're going to get in some slightly different things, but before we do that, let's have prayer and invite the Lord's leading. Father in heaven, we lift up your name this morning, for you are glorious, and all we are or ever hope to be is through your power and through your indwelling spirit. 
Today we ask again that your spirit would be here, that you would work through me, that you will open up the hearts and minds of each individual here today, and that ultimately that we would come to know you better and live with you forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a starting point today, I'm going to um, read a few paragraphs from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that talk about design law. Um, the, The first one comes from the book Education, written by Ellen White, starting on page 99 and going on to the top of page 100. It says, nature testifies of God. The susceptible mind brought into contact with the miracle and the mystery of the universe cannot but recognize the working of infinite power. Not by its own inherent energy does the earth produce its bounties and year by year continue its motion around the sun. An unseen hand guides the planets in their circuits of the heavens. A mysterious life invades all nature a life that sustains the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity, that lives in the insect which floats about in the summer breeze, that wings the flight of the swallow and feeds the young ravens which cry, that brings the bud to blossom and the flower to fruit. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man, The great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, whether physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe and to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. I'd also like to read a paragraph found in the Testimonies to the Church, Volume 3, page 161. And in this paragraph that I'm going to read, Mrs. White uh, uses the term uh, natural law several times. It is what I have been referring to as design law. Uh, I kind of prefer to use the term design law because in the name itself it points you back to a designer. When you use the term natural law, there are people on this earth that basically worship nature and they see that as being natural law and they're worshiping that rather than the creator and the designer. So I'm just saying that in explanation. When you hear this uh, quote from Mrs. White, she uses natural law several times several times, but she's referring to the same thing as what I'm calling design law. Volume 3 of the Testimonies, page 161. Men and women cannot violate natural law by indulging depraved appetite and lustful passions, 
and not violate the law of God. Most of our enjoyment or suffering may be traced to obedience or transgression of natural law. Our gracious Heavenly Father sees the deplorable condition of men. Some knowingly, but many ignorantly, are living in violation of these laws that he has established. And in love and in pity to the race, God causes the light to shine upon health reform. He publishes his law and the penalty that will flow or that will follow the transgression of it, that all may learn and be careful to live in harmony with natural law. He proclaims his law distinctly and makes it so prominent that it is like a city set on a hill. All accountable beings can understand it if they will. To make plain natural law and to urge the obedience of it is the work that accompanies the third angel's message to prepare people for the Lord's coming. And one other shorter one from Prophets and Kings, page 625. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but rather between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. These agencies, which have united against truth, are now actively at work. Unquote. Have you seen the work of these agencies in the world lately? The evidence is everywhere, isn't it? You know, fighting against truth, claiming things that are actually fables is actually being their religion. You know, you probably noticed that the uh, title for the sermon today is called "Parables of Jesus: The Overarching Theme." The parables of Jesus teach many beautiful truths about God's kingdom. But what many haven't realized is that there is one overarching theme about God's kingdom that is revealed through all of his parables. And that is the truth about his government. And when you talk about his government, you're talking about him, right? The truth about God and how reality works in his kingdom. And that truth is that God's law is design law. Through his parables, Jesus consistently exposed that God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world, which make up rules and enforce them by inflicted punishments. Jesus revealed that God's kingdom is the kingdom of reality, built upon laws that life operates upon. These are constants that never change, like the laws of health and physics and the moral laws. Jesus' amazing parables reveal that deviations from God's design law cause death. 
And that death is not an inflection from God. Death is caused by sin. I'd like to reread um, just one of the verses that Amy read in the call to worship from Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, she read 17 through 19. I'd like to reread verse 19 and listen to the contrast that Solomon wrote in these words here. It says, He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Consistently, through the parables of Jesus, God is revealed as a God of love and that he continually seeks to heal all who trust him, restoring them back to harmony with his designs for life. And so without any more introduction, we're going to get right into the parables. And I didn't try to count how many parables are in the Bible, but I'm thinking there must be at least 50 or 60 or 70. You know, There's a lot of them, and there's no way I have time to cover all of those today. I'm not sure how far I'm going to get. I'm going to try to cover 18 or 20. We'll see if I get there. I don't know, but we'll keep in mind of what the time is. So, We're going to start out with the one that was our um, scripture reading today from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. That talks about the lamp, the light that's on a hill and shines out for all to see. Um, if one lights a lamp and allows it to do what it naturally does... What does it do? It shines, right? It illuminates. It uh, chases away the darkness. What kind of law is revealed in this parable? Well, God's truth and love will always shine out through the lives of those who possess it, brightening the world around them. However, if one tries to hide the light, They are working against how reality operates. But it is possible to hide the light, isn't it? Actually, the verses that were read talks about hiding the light under a peck measure or a bushel basket. And we find very creative ways to hide the light sometimes. Um, Let's move on to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. There's a parable there that I think many of you are familiar with, and it's about... um, trying to remove a speck from someone's eye when you have a log in your own eye, right? All familiar with that parable? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What is the natural result of having a larger object in one's eye? Other than, obviously, I'm sure it's very painful. Yeah, beyond the pain, your, your vision is greatly obstructed, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> This parable teaches the reality that lies, falsehoods, biases, errors, and prejudices can obstruct our ability to discern and comprehend and understand reality. The more lies we believe, the greater the blindness. So if we want to be effective in helping others, we must first remove the distortions from our own minds. What kind of law is being described here? Again, it's design law. It's exactly how reality works. 
move ahead a couple chapters again in Matthew to Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, a couple of very short parables. One is about sewing new cloth on an old garment, and the other is about putting new wine into an old wineskin. What happens when new cloth is sewn onto an old garment? The new cloth tears the old garment. Why? Is it because a ruling authority inspects the garment and issues the decree that is enforced by government agents who come along and tear it off and tear a bigger hole? No. Or is it design law? Is it how reality works? The fibers of the old garment have gotten old and weak, and sewing the new one onto it doesn't work. It just tears off. And the same lesson applies to pouring the new wine into the old wineskins. The gospel, which is the good news about God, cannot be sewn onto an old garment of legalism. It requires a new heart for the new truths that Jesus revealed to us. Let's move ahead to uh, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about divided kingdoms. He talked about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why is that? For what reason? It's just the natural result of warring against oneself. The system eventually collapses. And therefore... God's kingdom can never achieve its goals of healing hearts and minds if we use the methods of the world. Thus, uh, we cannot use human governments to achieve our godly goals. We are called to come out of the world and to be separate. But I've heard too many Christians over the last few years that are calling for the government to get involved in religious things, and I think we have to be very careful about that. Let's move on ahead now to Matthew 13, which is just loaded with parables, and we're going to look at several of them from Matthew 13. First one is the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 23. Now, why do the seeds that are all the same species when they are sown grow differently? Is it because God uses his power to miraculously make some seeds grow and others not to grow? Or are the seeds equally healthy when planted and receive equal amounts of sunshine and rain, but the soil into which the seeds are planted is different? What does this represent? What is the soil? It's the hearts of people, the hearts of individuals into which the seeds of truth are planted. Each one has a decision to make, a choice to make, and God leaves us free to make a choice, doesn't he? Next parable immediately following that, still in Matthew 13, is the parable of the weeds among the wheat. Why do weeds grow in fields? Well, in the parable, it talks about an enemy actually sowed weeds in with the wheat. But as we know, Satan on this earth for six plus millennia now 
has caused sin to cause many things to de- degradate, and you don't have to sow weeds anymore. Anybody that farms or has a garden knows that weeds come up by themselves, and it's almost impossible to keep them out. You know. But what happens when you pull the weeds that are growing next to the wheat or anything else that you're growing? Yeah, some of the wheat gets pulled up too, doesn't it? And there's an allegory to what that is in the church. In the church, the unconverted grow next to the converted. And if we try to root out the unconverted, we will also pull out of the church the converted to whom the unconverted are connected. Thus, in his great wisdom, Jesus instructed us to wait until the harvest, the second coming, for the wheat and the tares to be separated. And what determines which group one is placed into? Again, it's reality. Wheat is wheat. Weeds are weeds. They are separated based on who they actually are. So too, in the end, those saved are those that have had their hearts and minds set right with God. They've been reborn. They've been transformed. They've been restored to the image of God. While those lost are those who never had their hearts truly changed, despite the fact that many of them are claiming a legal right to salvation via the blood payments of Jesus. Let's move on to the next parable, still in Matthew 13. This is of the mustard seed, found in verses 31 and 32. What does a mustard seed do when it's planted in the garden and is watered and is nurtured? Well, it does what it's designed to do. It grows and it becomes a place of shade for others. The mustard seed represents the gospel which grows in the hearts of those who accept it and brings forth fruits of a righteous character, those who have a righteous character create an atmosphere of love, grace, and mercy, giving shade from the scorching heat of this world's sin and selfishness. Moving on to the next parable, which is also in Matthew 13, verses 33 and 34, the parable of leaven. What is the lesson of leaven? How does leaven work? Is it that God inspects the flower, and if the flower contains leaven, then God uses a miracle to make it rise? And if it doesn't use leaven, then God refuses to perform a miracle to make the bread rise? No. It's the natural result of design work or design law at work how these various substances that God has created function in harmony with the laws that God built life to operate upon. It is the kingdom of God's reality. Moving down to verses 47 to 50, still in Matthew 13, we have the parable of the dragnet, where some fishermen throw out this net, drag it through the water, pull in a load of fish, and the parable tells us that some of them are kept and some that are thrown out. What determines which fish are kept and which are discarded? 
It is the condition of the fish themselves. There is no jury or prosecutor or defense lawyer or judge. It's all based on the actual condition of the fish. So too in the end of time, people will be separated by their con- the conditions of their hearts, having accepted Jesus and being renewed in love, or rejected Jesus and having been hardened in selfishness. This is design law and not a legal issue at all. Okay, we're leaving Matthew 13 now, going ahead to Matthew 18, where we have the parable of the lost sheep found in verses 12 through 14, sometimes referred to as the 90 and 9 that are still in the fold and the one that's lost. The parable reveals the reality of God's heart and attitude and shows how love works. Love seeks without inducement, without payment, without counting the cost. As we all have read and know it by heart, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The sheep did not have to do anything to get the shepherd to come looking for it. Instead, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 God's action to save us is the natural reaction to take when love rules the heart. Again, the parable teaches the reality that God is love and that his kingdom is a kingdom of love. No legal process is necessary. All right, still in Matthew 18, but dropping down to verses 23 to 35, we have the parable about a couple of people that owed money. Uh, The first one was forgiven a great sum, but ultimately he was lost. What causes the servant with the great debt to ultimately be lost, even though he was forgiven his great debt? I mean, the servant experienced grace in having his debt forgiven, but that grace did not change his heart. That servant went out and demanded payment from one who owed him a much, much smaller debt. And yes, Don't miss the point. It was his legal right to do so. In other words, the unforgiving servant followed what was legal. Why then was he lost? Because salvation is not a legal issue. It is a character issue. Despite being legal in his actions, he remained selfish. The unforgiving servant did not experience the change of heart despite the grace that was given to him. Again, Jesus reveals how reality works. God's kingdom is not based on imposed law. Those who cling to that method, legal rules, and have no heart change are like the lost servant who was legally right but terminally selfish. Move ahead a couple chapters now to Matthew chapter 20. 
verses 1 through 16. This is the parable about the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, The owner of the vineyard went out and hired people at different parts of the day, early in the morning, later in the morning, at noon, early afternoon, later afternoon, right before the end of the day. Probably familiar with it. Has this parable ever bothered any of you about um, getting paid the same at the end of the day? I see some yeses and some noes. This is a great parable because it powerfully exposes the fallacy of imposed law, the lie that salvation is a legal issue. The workers who worked one hour got the same pay as those who worked all day. What did those who worked all day think? Well, when the ones that worked at the end of the day got paid first and got the same amount, they were thinking, oh, great, I'm going to get a lot more, right? That was their thought. That's what I would have thought. But that's not what happened. They all got the same pay. Now, I ask you the question, is that fair? And the way you answer that question, whether it's fair or not, depends on your law view, whether you have an imposed law view or a design law view. It is totally unfair if we have an imposed law view. No, the the way of the world, the laws of the world, that is not fair what happened. But if we have a design law view and understand how reality works, we immediately see just how fair God's kingdom is. And I'm not going to leave you hanging there. I'm going to explain it a little more. (laughs) Um, Number one, what is the payment in the spiritual application? Eternal life. Exactly right. This is the reward. The field is the earth. And where we work with Jesus to save souls that are around us, the people that we live around and work with. And and those that worked all day had salvation early in their lives and had the privilege of working with God and therefore coming to know him better and better. And his truths were more fully known and growing in character and in skills and God's methods. They applied his methods early in their lives and they became more skilled in laboring for him and applying his principles to their lives, which means they became more mature than those who only worked one hour. The classic example, of course, of the one working one hour is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross is no less saved than anyone else. He got the same payment, the same reward, eternal life. But... He did not have the privilege of having a lifetime of growth with God. But if one holds the human law model, the legal view, then this parable appears very unfair. And this is why the Pharisees hated the things that Jesus taught. Let's move ahead one more chapter to uh, Matthew 21. Here we have a parable about two sons who the father asked to go out and work during the day. And the two sons had very different responses. The first son said, I will do it, and immediately left. But he ended up not going out and working like he told his father he was going to. Whereas the second son was the opposite response. He told him, no, I'm not going to. 
But later he changed his mind, and he did, and he went and worked for his father. Well, what is the lesson in all this? I think the primary lesson here is that actions speak louder than words. It is ultimately what we do with our lives that matters, not necessarily what we initially say. How many are being duped today because they merely go on the words of what people say and don't really look to see what their actions are and what they're actually doing? Lies are nothing but words. Truth is how reality works. Thus, the parable is another example of the application of design law, law revealing the truth in spite of the words spoken. Turn next to the next chapter, Matthew 22, first 14 verses, we have the parable of the marriage feast or the great banquet. Who all was invited to this banquet? Everyone was invited, but who ultimately came? Not that many people came, did they? And it was those that came were those that were thought to be undeserving by the world. In other words, those who couldn't earn or merit a place by their own effort. And who actually decided who would attend? Each individual had to make the choice. What is the lesson? Is this a legal process for recording bad deeds committed? Or is it a process of accepting the invitation and partaking in the resources provided, such as the clothing given, which represents the remedy of Christ's righteousness that heals us? Those without a robe are those who have not had their hearts transformed. Again, Jesus teaches us reality and not legality. Turn ahead another three chapters to Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. There were five wise and five foolish. What makes the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins? Yeah, they, the wise had extra oil, right? But before we get to the oil, what about the lamps? Why don't lamps give light without oil? I mean, is it that God performs a miracle for those who have the oil but refuses to perform a miracle for those that don't? Or is it once again how reality works? The lamps do not burn without fuel. Can any human have the light of God's character shine forth from their lives without the oil of the Holy Spirit in their hearts? It's not possible, is it? But we can have the Bible without the oil. Psalms 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
So thy word or the Bible is a lamp. But if we have the lamp without the oil of the Holy Spirit, we're going to get deceived and lost. We cannot have a light, which is a godly character, without having the oil of the Holy Spirit filling our lives. So again, who decides who are the wise and who are the foolish? Who has the oil and who doesn't? We do. Is exactly right. Immediately following that parable is the parable of the ten talents, still in Matthew 25. This parable beautifully describes the law of exertion. What happens if you don't use the talents that you possess? If you don't use them, you eventually lose them. But if you apply yourself, you gain more abilities. Again, no legal process. It is the reality of the outcomes of our choices in using the talents that God gives us. Okay, we're quickly running out of time. We're going to skip out of Matthew and look at three or four parables in Luke, and then we're going to wrap it up. Let's go to Luke chapter 10, 29 to 37. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this story, there was a man that was hurt on the road to Jericho, and there were three men that passed him, a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. Which person proved to be right with God? The Samaritan, right? What determined who was right with God? Was it how many Sabbaths the Samaritan kept? How many sacrifices he made at the temple? You know, good and well, he wasn't allowed to make sacrifices at the temple. How much tithe he paid or how many kosher meals he ate? Do you see what mattered was not a list of rules, but having God's love in his heart. And what law is this? The law of love. Luke chapter 15, we have three parables about things that are lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son that was lost. Um, I'm not going to really go too much into the lost sheep because we already talked about that in the Matthew version of the same parable. Let's look at the lost coin. As with the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin reveals the heart of God to seek that which is lost. God actively searches for his lost children because that is what love does. It's what it naturally does. But what is the difference between the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Well, let's start with the lost coin while we're here. The lost coin didn't know it was lost, but the owner came and searched for it and found it in his home. The lost sheep knew it was lost, but it didn't know how to get home. The owner searched for it, found it, and brought it home. But the prodigal son or the lost son, he knew he was lost and he knew the way home, 
Therefore, the father had nothing he could do but wait. He waited for his son to make the choice to come home. In all three, what does the father or owner reveal about himself? Demonstrating the law of love, right? To, To go out and seek. But the law of love also always grants freedom, the freedom of choice. And so the father had to wait. I mean, continuing talking a little bit more about the prodigal son, why did the father leave the son in dire straits? I mean, what would have happened had the father continued to send money to the son after he ran out? Would that have helped the problem? No. The son had to hit the bottom and make a choice to come home. Why did the father accept him back? And when he did, what were the terms or the conditions of acceptance? Did the father require a payment? Was a lawyer necessary to argue the legal right of the son to return? Is there any judicial process at all? Or is the only requirement a change of heart in the son? All right. One more. Last parable we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31, which is the parable of the rich man of Lazarus, which is kind of a sticky one. And I'm really not going to get into the parts that are sticky because I don't think that was Jesus' main point. He was using a story that was a common story to people that they knew it and understood it. And there were parts of it that were not right, but he used it to make a point at the end of the story. The bottom line was a simple lesson of reality. And that is, at the end of the story, he said, if people won't accept truth when it is presented, then miracles, including bringing somebody back from the dead, isn't going to change them. This was proven true shortly thereafter with a man that was really named Lazarus. Lazarus died and came back from the dead, but the religious leaders still would not accept him and still were not converted. In closing, I would like to read another short statement from The Desire of Ages, page 761. I'm going to read just a short statement here because it's because of time restraints. We're out of time, but I would urge you to go home and read perhaps the whole chapter, um, which is the chapter called It Is Finished, but particularly the end of the chapter, pages 7, 61, 62, 63. It's just crazy. You, know, you, you need to read it. But I'm going to read one paragraph to pique your interest here. This is, um, it goes back to when Satan was still in heaven, and he was arguing with God that God could not save the people on earth because they had sinned. 
And God wouldn't be consistent. He couldn't have both mercy and justice and, you know, some of Satan's false arguments. And let's read what it says. Desire of Ages, page 761, says, In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed and that justice was inconsistent with mercy and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Still, Satan talking says, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. I submit to you this morning that these are all lies of Satan, and that is not the way God really works. In all these parables, Jesus revealed that the kingdom of God is based upon the laws that the creator built into the very fabric of reality and that these laws are an expression of his character of love. Jesus never taught illegal theology. God's law originates in his being and emanates from his heart. All creation is sustained by him. And it is Satan's lie that God's law functions like human law, impose rules that require imposed punishments. At this time in earth's history, God is calling for his people to come out of the confusing systems of religiosity based on imposed rules. So reject Satan's legal lies and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the fountains of water.